listening to a Drishti Point podcast. Please visit our website for more inspiring interviews on yoga, spirituality, and wellness. We are here today with Venerable Sumati Marut, also known as Brian Smith. He is a Buddhist monk and Dharma teacher and teacher of philosophy, former professor of comparative religion, and he's here today to begin our series or continue our series on the Bhagavad Gita. Welcome, Lama Marut. Thanks, Faraz. Nice to be with you. Today, our subject is Karma Yoga and the chapter in the Bhagavad Gita on Karma Yoga. And I thought it would be good if we started off with a general description of what is described in the Bhagavad Gita as the way of right action. Well, it's hard to give a general uh, description of it because it it really is a concept that has many many different connotations. Uh, I don't think that there's any one chapter that that thoroughly um, specializes in in uh, karma yoga. The, the teachings on karma yoga are scattered throughout the whole text. As are the teachings on the other two main forms of yoga that the Gita teaches: the yoga of wisdom, jnana yoga, and the wisdom of uh, and the yoga of uh, devotion. Uh, so, in, in a way, we have to um, you know we have to study the whole text to find find out what Lord Krishna is really really talking about when he's talking about any one of these concepts. With the karma yoga concept, I think um, we can start with the idea of right action in, in, in just the most simple, simplest of, uh, you know, of meanings, which is you know, to, to act um, according to uh, morality, according to the principles of morality. And uh, of course, this is what, one of the things that Lord Krishna means when he's talking about karma yoga to, uh, to Arjuna. He's saying, um, you know, live a righteous life. Live a life uh, where, where you're attentive to the principles of karma. You know, so karma has a has a number of different kinds of meanings. You know, one of them is is action in general. The, so so karma yoga means how to how to yogify, how to discipline your actions. But you can also say in in accordance with the law of karma. Uh, so karma also means the law of karma, the law that 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 that. Uh, Every action has a reaction, that everything that we do uh, rebounds upon us in one way or another. So if we do, uh, if we do kind actions, if we do uh, selfless actions, if we do compassionate actions, then good, good results will come to us. You know, I expected to see that explained in the chapter about karma yoga, but I was surprised when I actually read it. And one of the, there were a couple of terms that kept coming up in the chapter about karma yoga one of which was disciplining the senses. And I imagine this is very much related indirect and direct way to the seeds of what we do plant for future incarnations. Can you talk about the value and purpose of why we would want to discipline or pay attention to our sense organs and and our desires that arise from them? Well, yeah, I mean, you kind of hinted at it in the last, the last things that you just said there, you know, with the, when, when we are just mindlessly uh, following whatever, whatever desires arise as a result of our, especially five senses, uh, although in, you know, in Indian philosophy, they, they include the sixth sense as the mind. And so I guess you could say that too, you know, that whenever we just um, mindlessly uh, are, are slaves to our senses and the desires that those senses stimulate, uh, you know, we're, we're kind of then operating on automatic pilot in life and generally speaking uh, are creating a lot of negative karma for ourselves we, by, by simply following whatever it is that, that we want to eat, that we want to 
is a kind of a, uh, a foundation for for living a, a, a righteous life that isn't just led, isn't just um, a life that's being led around by the nose of our of our desires. Uh, generally speaking, our desires are uh, are, are wired wrong. Uh, we desire things that selfishly that actually cause us pain, and uh, you know, and 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 it is this sort of this sort of egotistical, selfish idea of just following uh, the desires that rise from the sense organs that Lord Krishna is talking about when he says, you know, discipline, discipline those senses. Think about, think about uh, what's really in your self-interest. And not just what appears to be in the moment, uh, egotistically, selfishly in your self-interest. So he's asking us to, uh, you know, as all great religious teachers actually have always done, to, to put aside our, our lower base sort of instinctual uh, drives and to, you know, to, to, to climb higher and become, uh, and become people who are, uh, who are intelligently living a, a good moral life because they know it's it's what really brings the happiness that they're looking for, not the not the endless and mindless pursuit of, uh, of of sense desires. Now, one thing that I think about as I listen to you is there seems to be in every person desire for happiness and desire for a happiness that is not temporary but something that is really lasting. And how does this desire and this yearning help to bring us to the path of righteous action? Well, that's a really good question because, of course, desire, you know, is sometimes misunderstood. Uh, people read texts like the Bhagavad Gita and other texts of the Eastern traditions, Buddhist and Hindu alike, and they, they see desire as being uh, vilified. And uh, then they sort of sort of make blanket uh, a statements, blanket assumptions that I guess that means all desire, including the desire for happiness, the desire to be a good person, the desire to achieve enlightenment, etc., are also bad. And of course, that's not that's not uh, at all uh, what's meant. Of course, if we didn't have a if we didn't have desire, we wouldn't have motivation. Uh, desire is a motivation. So, so the question is not to you know, especially initially, not to eliminate all desire, but to but to be. Uh, to be smart about what we really desire and how to go about getting it. So as you pointed out, uh, at our deepest levels of being, what we really desire is, is happiness, perfect happiness, which has nothing to do with the satisfaction, the endless quest to, to satisfy our sense desires, the, the desires of our sense. Much deeper than that, it is, uh, begins with what we call contentment. And, uh, and that is, in a way, you could say we desire contentment, which means we desire the end of desire. We desire the, the end of always wanting more, always needing something else for our happiness. So, so it's very kind of interesting, almost paradoxical, that we, we must, of course, cultivate desire because that's, that's what stimulates our motivation. That's what is going to motivate us to be a good person. But to understand that what, what it is that we really desire is the end of desire. We, what we really desire is a happiness, a deep-seated happiness that that isn't always dissatisfied, that isn't always craving, wanting more, wanting more all the time. So it's very interesting. Uh, and then, and then the second thing is, well, then how do I get to that state? <laughs> That's what I was just going to ask. Yeah, of perfect happiness. And uh, and then again, karma yoga. Uh, well, uh, among other, uh, among the other uh, methods uh, that that Lord Krishna teaches in the Bhagavad Gita, he teaches us the method of of acting in the world, you know, with other people, not running away to some cave in the Himalayas or something like that, but in or or a 
or a cabin in, uh, you know, in, in upstate uh, British Columbia. <laughs> to live in the world, uh, you know, in our, in our daily interactions with people, but to learn how to discipline our actions such that those actions result karmically in the, in the goal that we're looking for, that we're really looking for. And, um, it's, and so then, then we have to think about, well, what, how does karma really work? And, uh, you know, as I started to say before, the, the fundamental principle of karma is that no good action goes unrewarded and no negative action goes unpunished. And, and positive, good and negative actions here are defined as good actions as selfless action, action that's, that's, that is uh, motivated by compassion and love for others. And negative action is selfish action of, of what's in it for me in the moment. Now, that's very interesting because that relates to what I see as a second big concept which comes up. And in the translation I was reading, it, it talked about non-attachment, not being attached to the outcome of your of your work and that seems very much in line with what you're saying about acting selflessly without um this is another dimension of karma yoga that's actually a big topic and um you know hopefully we can we can continue uh, continue with this because this really lies at the at the heart of what lord krishna really is teaching when he's teaching karma yoga in the bhagavad gita he's teaching us how to act without undue attention over overly at- attentive to what we're going to get out of the action in the short run. Uh, so what's in it for me? To, to learn how to act without always thinking, well, what's in it for me in the short run, in this particular moment, and to think about our future, to think about planting seeds for a different kind of future. And um, this is a, you know, this is a very, very deep, under, a deep concept, deep, um, deep topic uh, that, you know. It is, because it struck me as really the only living examples we have of that are monks and spiritual teachers who offer their wisdom and teachings to other service that I can't think of any other examples of people acting in the world where they're not attached to the outcome well I, I think uh, I think for all we have to be we have to be a little more subtle about what what is meant by you know by outcome and attachment and so forth I mean of course every action is going to have a reaction the Lord Krishna assumes this assumes that we're all kind of on the same page here about karma. You know, karma is a fundamental principle in all religions of India. The uh, you know, universally, it's universally um, uh, assumed that, that if you do negative things, negative, negative uh, results will come to you. If you do positive things, positive results will come to you. So Lord Krishna is not saying that your actions won't have some kind of outcome. Of course they'll have an outcome. But to be overly attached to, to the immediate outcome, is, is what Lord Krishna really means when he's talking about not, not, not as non-attachment to the fruits of action. So, so at, at one level, we have, to, we have to see this teaching as just a simple restatement of what karma really means. Karma, karma doesn't, doesn't uh, you, your karmic actions, your actions do not flower in the moment, in the next moment. There, could be a, there is always a gap between cause and effect, between mm-hmm. what you do now and what you will get back later. Mm-hmm. And don't don't worry about what comes next. Do the right thing, no matter what comes next. You know, and, and then so so we have to think about this because this is um this is one of the reasons why we don't really have any faith in karma is because sometimes we do nice things for other people, and then in the immediate aftermath, in the immediate next moment, you know, they're mean back to us or something. They're unappreciative. They they, they hurt us in, in in apparent response to our good action. So 
Do you think that's because our view is just narrow in terms of we view things just in terms of our lifetime now that we know and not in terms of a broader one of perhaps? I mean, in general, that's the case. Even in this lifetime, our, our view is very narrow. And, uh, and so if you, if you think that the, the result of a person being, being mean to you, if you think that the person being mean to you was the result of you being kind to them, then all bets are off when it comes to karma. And this does happen to us, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. You know, we, we do something nice for someone else, and they're completely unappreciative or completely, uh, you know, even worse. You know, you, you return, return all the goodness with, with, uh, with, with, with anger or with hatred or, or with some kind of uh, action designed to hurt us. And, and what Lord Krishna is teaching when he's teaching unattachment to the fruits of, of action at one level means, means don't be attached to the immediate, uh, the immediate apparent results because they aren't really the results at all. But nothing bad can come from something good. If you have done some kind action to someone else, the, the immediate, the immediate uh, response of this person, if it's negative, cannot be related to the, to the goodness of the action. The result, the good result will come later. Mm -hmm. negative, the negative uh, response that the person has given, let's say, in this example, hasn't come from the good action at all. It's come from a previous negative action that you've done. So non-attachment to the fruits of action means non-attachment to the immediate, apparent fruits of action, which aren't even the fruits of that action at all. You see what I mean? And, and to have faith that there will always be fruits to action, of course, and to not, and to not mistake what happens in the immediate aftermath of an action as being the result of that action, that there always will be a gulf, there will always be a, uh, a time delay between the cause and the and the real result of that cause. And you know, we can work it the other way around too. Sometimes we do negative actions and we seem to get away with it, right? We we lie, we lie, for example, at the job, you know, and then we get a promotion on the, seemingly on the basis of the lie. And, and uh, then we have to think, well, did some did some good thing, a promotion, come from a negative action like lying? You know, absolutely not. Cannot cannot have any 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 connection at all. You see, causal connection at all. So, so the lying the lying didn't bring the promotion. You got the promotion because you planted a, a, a positive seed in the past that's now coming to fruition. And the and the seed that you planted for lying is. Do you see what I mean? Yes. There is so much to talk about. I'm I'm hoping that we'll get you'll get to answer all of the questions I have, but I'm sure that we won't get to cover everything. One of the things that I was struck by in the chapter I was reading was mention of the gunas and the nature of pakriti as the motivation for action rather than the motivator being the I or the ego as the, the thing that motivates us to do things. I'm wondering if you can speak about the gunas and the I aspect of ego. Well, this is one of the places, one of the many places, I think, where the Bhagavad Gita and the teachings of Buddhism overlap. I mean, you know, sometimes people get the wrong idea about the difference between the, the, the traditions of Hinduism and Buddhism. And they say, well, you know, Buddhism has got this big thing about unatman, no, no self. And then, you know, we read in the, in the, you know, Hindu text about an Atman. So maybe that, maybe there's some big difference there. And, uh, you know, in, in the Bhagavad Gita as well as in, in, in many, many of the Hindu texts, what is meant by the Atman is certainly not. And, uh, so what the Bhagavad Gita is saying is that there is no doer. It means that there's no ego in the sense of some master, you know, controlling self that's calling the shots as we go, as we go through our, our, our lives. And, uh, we have a strong sense that there's a self like that. And 
so, um, so you know, when when we do in our Buddhist uh, in our Buddhist meditations, no self meditation. One, one of the meditations that we do is just try and find it. Try to find the self that you think that there is some kind of controlling self that you know that's that's. I always like think of it as Captain Kirk, you know, on the you know in the in, in Star Trek, and he's sitting up there on the the bridge of the spaceship Enterprise, you know, just calling all the shots, you know. Mm-hmm. It make make left turn, you know, send out, you know, send out starships, et cetera, et cetera, you know. Uh, and we think that there's some little Captain Kirk self sitting up in our, you know, in our, you know, spaceship enterprise calling all the shots all day long. And, uh, and, and that's what the Gita means by a doer, by somebody who, you know, who is in charge of action in the moment. And so when, the, when, when Lord Krishna teaches that actually there is no doer, there is no actor in that sense, He's, he's talking of, uh, from another different. He's talking uh, at another different angle about karma. Really, we are forced by our karma. You know what? What, what sometimes the Gita calls the gunas. It's just another name for karma. You know, we are forced by our actions in the past to to, to act as we do in the present. There is no Captain Kirk self that's that's making that decision in the moment. When we practice karma yoga, what we're doing is practicing for the future, planting seeds for the future. What has what is happening now isn't in our control, actually. There's so, no doer in that sense. What is happening now is the product of past action. So I heard once someone refer to acting in this life to create some scatters of wisdom or something. I mean, uh, uh, or, or, you know, in this life, in this moment, you know, for, for a better future in all kinds of ways. For a better future, you know, in terms of our material, our material uh, wealth, which is very important to have, you know, to have the comforts and so forth that we enjoy now. We get that material prosperity and so forth that we take for granted now in the modern West from karmic action, of course, from, from generosity, from caring about the material prosperity of other people. So if we're interested in having prosperity in the future, we have to be planting the seeds for it now in the present. And similarly with good relationships or, you know, whatever it is that you want in life. And wisdom very much also part of that. And, but everything is coming from karma. Yeah. No, there are no karma-free zones. You know, it's, uh, it's interesting because there was one verse in particular that said, those people who enjoy all the bounty without having any, uh, all the bountiful things that they have in their lives, without any reverence from the source of that, are thieves indeed. Yeah, of course. I mean, you know, this is, and this is uh, the case with most of us, I think, living in the modern Western world. We, we were enjoying great, great prosperity, great freedom, uh, freedom to practice religion, freedom, freedom of all sorts, political uh, freedom, where, where nobody's bombing our countries, you know, uh, and uh, we just take it all for granted and don't think of like, well, how did we get a life like this? Where did it come from? What, what kinds of actions must I have done in the past that have brought me a life like this now? And then if you start to think about that, it gets kind of awesome pretty quickly, like, you know, I must have been a pretty good person, <laughs> you know, yes. in, the, in the fairly recent past. And, uh, you know, and then the next question is, am I recreating? any of the karma in my present life that would bring your life anything like this in the future. You see? Mm-hmm. And uh, then it gets a little more serious. Then it gets, <laughs> uh, the, the smile gets wiped off your face a little bit and you go, oh my God, you know, I better pay more attention to karma. I better more pay, pay more attention to how the world's really working and uh, not just take things for granted and not think that uh, I can control my present in the present. The present is a perfect result of past causes. So you cannot control the present in the present. And that's exactly what Lord Krishna means by there is no doer. There's no doer in the present. But of course, there, there's a doer in the sense of somebody who's creating karmic seeds for the future. So we, although we cannot change the present in the present, we can change the future in the present by, by, by 
creating a karmic seeds for a different kind of a, a better future. Hopefully, mm-hmm. we're always creating the the karma for a, for our future. But to, to be attentive to that and to say, well, what kind of what kind of action in in the present, in my present life, in my present moment here, would be designed to bring me a good result in the future? It, that was a very um, interesting word you used, attentive, and it strikes me as very important because I think a lot most spiritual practices try to build in a person awareness and attention to what is happening as it's happening, and attention to right. I mean, you know, because we're generally totally spaced out about what's going on in our lives. I mean, all, almost all day. <laughs> yes. Attentive to, uh, to what's happening here and now. We're, we're we're you know daydreaming about you know the past, and most often I think about the future. Mm-hmm. about what's going to happen, you know, next or, you know, next week or, you know, two years from now or something like that, you see, and not, not living our lives in the present, which means that, that our actions in the present are unmindful. They're just, uh, you know, we're just kind of on automatic pilot doing whatever is habitual, whatever kind of comes to mind for us to do without thinking about, well, is this action, you know, in my present designed to bring me a pleasant or an unpleasant result in the future? And that's uh, karma yoga. Karma yoga is like being mindful of that. Now, exactly what you said about habits. Let's let's come back to this because in one poignant verse, Arjuna asks, by what is man impelled to perform evil deeds? Why do we have these tendencies sometimes to get angry, to get upset, to get frustrated, to do things that we know are hurtful to others? Yeah, I love that verse. I'm glad you quoted it. It's a, yeah, for those, those people who brought up in the Christian tradition, uh, there's a very, very similar uh, sentiment expressed by um, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, which is basically like, you know, look, I, I know I should be a good person, but sometimes I just can't help but be a bad person. Mm-hmm. Why is that? Why do I do the things that I know I shouldn't do and don't do the things that I know I should do? And it's a very, a very important uh, <laughs> question. Any, anybody who's like halfway aware of, uh, you know, living, a, trying to live a good life, this question has come up in their minds at some level. Like, how come, how come I don't do what I know I should do? Yes. <laughs> why, am I, why am I continually, you know, doing the things that, are, that I know are designed to bring unhappiness to me when I want happiness? So, for example, losing your temper with another person, being angry, is designed to bring you unhappiness. Yes. In a way, you could say it's almost instant karma because, you know, you can't be happy and angry at the same time. So, you know, if you're angry, you are, you, you are even in the moment unhappy. And then you're planting seeds uh, for future unhappiness, you know, in your life. And, and so, well, why do we do this? And we say, well, I don't know. It seems like there's, there's some force in me that, that takes me over and I can't help it. You know, people, people say this. People think this. We all think this. And there is no force like that. I mean, there is no... The, the force that takes you over is the force of habit. That's all it is. You lose your temper because you've lost your temper over and over and over again in the past. And the way to, to break that force is to break habit and to say, look, uh, you know, before it gets too late, before you actually lose your temper, to, you know, to think, is, is it uh, in my own self-interest to lose my temper now? Is it going to make me a happier person in the present, let, let alone in the future, to, to go off on this person that's provoked me right now and to, and to try to control yourself, try to think what's really in my self-interest in this situation? Is, is it worth, you know, having a bad day because this person, you know, said the wrong thing to me? or cut me off in traffic or something like that. Is it, is it worth it to me to, 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 to sort of take control of yourself in this, in this way also? So, you know, it's not like we are 
it sometimes feels like we're out of control, but actually, if, if you heard what I just said, and, and at some point in everyone's life, I think they hopefully have had the good fortune to hear that it's possible to change. You know, and and if, if you've heard that, then, then at every moment we have the freedom to say, look, uh, do I want to change here? Do, or do I just want to follow my, my instincts, my apparent instincts, my apparent habitual nature, just because I've always done it in the past, I'm going to do it again? Or am I going to break the cycle here now? And say, like, like Jesus also said, uh, uh, you know, the, the, turn the other cheek. When someone uh, offends you, you know, just let it go. Because, because the... The reason that somebody is offending you, somebody's hurting you, is because you were offensive to someone else in the past. And the worst thing you can do now in the present as your karma flowers is to recreate the causes for that very karma by being offensive back. You see what I mean? That's, that's why Jesus said things like turn the other cheek. That's why the, the religious texts teach us to, to, you know, to not return anger with anger because it's not in our self-interest. It, it's, it's perpetuating the very suffering that we want to um, that we want to eliminate in our life. And we can see this in our world in how violence is perpetuated by vi violence. Totally, totally. Do, does the practice of meditation? Over the course of millennia, we haven't, you know, as a as a, as a people, as a human race, we, we haven't learned anything. We just continue to make the same mistakes, and and we we make the same mistakes in our personal life over and over and over again. So, uh, you know, a spiritual practitioner. You know, somebody, somebody who's really interested in, in trying to create a happy life for themselves has to really fight, fight the, the power of habit and say, look, I, I'm just not going to, I'm not going to make the same mistake here that I've made many, many, many times in the past. I'm going to try to do something different. And it's really hard, you know, it's really hard for us because, you know, we, we're creatures of habit. We, I know it's hard. We're so conservative, aren't we? We are. But does the practice of meditation help to rewire our brains so that we can have those moments of pause and reflection before we continue to act in those same habitual ways? Yeah, totally. In the, in, you know, in my, in my uh, lineage of Buddhism, this is exactly what we think is the purpose of meditation. The purpose of meditation isn't to, you know, to get yourself calm or to, you know, get a little break from, uh, you know, from suffering and, 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 you know, a little half hour vacation or something like that from suffering. It's to, it's to rewire your brain by, by rehabituating, rehabituating it to a different set of, of understandings about how things are working in the world. So, uh, you know, we have, we have, um, meditations that are designed to, to, to overcome things like anger by habituating ourselves to wisdom and compassion so that, so that out of wisdom we understand the, the stupidest thing to do to, to a provocative person is to be angry back because it's not because it's designed to bring me exactly the same same uh, event in the future that I'm trying trying to avoid now in the present and then with compassion it's like well you know if a person is angry if a person is you know is, is saying mean things to you and so forth the proper human response is compassion for that person because a, a happy person wouldn't be acting like that a happy person wouldn't be wouldn't be uh, you know saying these kinds of things happy people are, are friendly people it's unhappy people who are angry and the you know the real proper human response the compassionate human response is to say well I feel sorry for you that's too bad that you feel that way <laughs> <laughs> and what are the things that people can do to cultivate compassion and wisdom outside of a meditation practice? Well, I mean, you know, I, I, I just really think that the, 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 best, the best way to, to really start a spiritual practice is to think, what's in my self-interest? Am I happier when I'm angry or when I'm kind? Am, am I happier, you see? Am I a happier person when I'm, when I'm cheating other people or when I'm actually honest with 
with other people. And you just you just learned that actually it's in your own enlightened self-interest to be a moral person, to be a compassionate person. And that's a form of wisdom, you see? A form of wisdom is understanding what's good for you, what's really good for you, what's in your self-interest. And, uh, you know, we say in Buddhism, what to, what to give up and what to take up. And giving up things like anger, giving up things like violence, giving up things like immorality is, is, is good for you. And taking up things like, you know, compassion and love and honesty and, and living a righteous life is also good for you. It, it makes for a happier life. So we all want to be happy, but we're, we're really bad at, like, figuring out how to do it. Now, I have a very personal question for you. How has it been for you personally to give up a life that you had and take up the life that you now lead? Oh, well, you know, it, it, it was the best thing I could have possibly done for myself. Uh, you know, I, I, I lived a whole kind of secular life. I mean, I, I, I didn't take robes uh, as, a, as a Buddhist monk until I was in my, um, I was in my 50s. So, I had, you know, I had been married uh, several times. I had uh, children. Uh, you know, I had a whole professional career. Uh, you know, I had lived a whole a whole life like that, and um, and for me that was important because I wasn't, as a young person, uh, spiritually wise enough to realize that uh, to realize that the happiness I was looking for wasn't in the marriages and the the profession and the money and so forth. So I had to go through that and uh, and find out for myself that it was having having money is better than not having money. Having relationships is fine. Uh, you you know, but it's not it's not the source of the deep seated happiness that we're all really looking for. The profession, the job, these aren't the sources of deep seated happiness. They're they're temporary, fleeting forms of happiness at best. And uh, generally speaking, because we're looking for the deep-seated happiness that isn't in those things, in them, we're disappointed by them. And uh, and then we think, oh, well, you know, this relationship didn't make me happy, or this job finally, like, we, I realize, well, this job is just frustrating, and there's there's always more hoops to jump through, et cetera, et cetera. And, and that's, um, that's worldly life. All the... All the things in a worldly life, in a non-spiritual life, are, are, are incapable of bringing us the deep, the deep uh, and lasting happiness that we're really looking for. So it's only in the spiritual life. And, how, you know, earlier on in the interview, you mentioned how hard it is to overcome habits and to do spiritual work. It's not like taking a vacation or anything like that. You as a monk are on the front lines of that, I imagine. What has it been like to face those things and come to the other side? Well, I mean, I, I, I don't know that I've really come to the other side. You know, I have my <laughs> bad days as well as anybody else. And, you know, just just because you're a monk doesn't make you like Superman or a nun makes you superwoman or something like that. We're, we're, we're people just like, you know, just like the late people and you know we, we have our ups and downs but uh, for me I think it was very very important to realize uh, to, to get some 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 form of what what they call in the traditions in, in Hindu and Buddhism alike yoga tradition some form of ren- renunciation some form of vairagya they say in the yoga sutra of detachment of renunciation uh, of letting go of the coal that's burning you and uh, we're, we're all you know holding on to coals we're all holding on to um, to uh, thinking that Things that cannot bring us the, the deep-seated and permanent happiness, ongoing happiness that we're looking for, thinking that those things can. And that's, that's just creating more and more suffering for ourselves. It's burning us. And to let it go means to say, okay, look, uh, I, I just realize now that I'm not going to be able to find the happiness I'm looking for in the job, in the relationships, in the money, in the new iPad. I'm not going to be able to find it in these things. And to get that sense of, you know, detachment or, you know, kind of a world weariness, 
of saying, like, I'm tired of making the same mistakes over and over and over again, of, of, of being disappointed in life. Mm-hmm. I'm going to not try a serious attempt at an alternative. And uh, I think until you realize that, until you get to that point, there is not, there, there isn't much an alternative for you. Until you get to some kind of, you know, pretty radical uh, detachment from the ordinary kinds of things of the world that, you know, the ordinary things in the world that we, that we all think will bring us happiness. Until we get some detachment from that, there's not much um, there's not much potential for, for, for any kind of progress in the alternative. So mm-hmm. that's why the religious traditions, you know, of all sorts tend to tend to emphasize renunciation as the as the foundation of a spiritual practice. Mm-hmm. To, to let go of that coal that's burning us in order to you know, in order to pursue an alternative. I'm wondering if there are any final thoughts that you'd like to leave our listeners with on the topic of karma yoga. Maybe something that we haven't covered or summarizing some of the discussions we've had. Well, yeah, I, 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 it's a huge topic, and as well as the uh, the other two topics that we'll talk about later on your show. And uh, I'm doing a whole uh, retreat uh, this summer on, on, on the Bhagavad Gita and other yogic texts where we'll go into these kinds of things in great detail. This is August 5th through 21st uh, in South Lake Tahoe. It's um, you can find out information about it at Classics of Yoga Retreat. That's one word, classicsofyogaretreat.com. And, uh, you know, we'd like to invite anyone, uh, you know, in Vancouver or anyone who's listening to, to come. And, and we'll, we'll have a chance over the course of two weeks to go into something that, you know, we only had a half an hour or something like that to talk about here. Uh, mm-hmm. The main thing about karma yoga, I'd say in summary, is, um, is, to, is to just recognize that, that we will always get back what we put out. And uh, it's not just the Bhagavad Gita that says this. Jesus was all over this. The Buddha was all over this. What goes around comes around. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, and do not do unto others as you would not have them do unto you. And this is the secret of living a good life. And and don't worry about the immediate next moment. Think about the future. There's always a gulf between cause and effect. And have some faith that no matter what seems to happen in the next moment, that if your your good actions will always have a good result. Always. Fundamental law of karma. And if you don't believe that, then you have no real basis of morality at all. If you think that sometimes good action brings good good results, but sometimes it doesn't, then all bets are off when it comes to living a good life, living a moral life. So every good action must have a good result, and every negative action must be punished. So, you know, we all want to live a happy life. So so start. Start, start creating the causes for a happy life by being kind to others, by, by doing unto others as you would have them do unto you. So you see what I mean? We all want, we all want people to be nice to us, but, but we have to be nice to them first. Yes, I think that's a, a great nugget to leave us with the golden teachings of you reap what you sow. Thank you so much for being with us. It's been a pleasure to have you and I look forward to our next two interviews. Uh, my, my pleasure, Farah. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Drishti Point. We dedicate our efforts to the health and happiness of our listeners and for the health and happiness of all living beings.